what a marvelous thing you decided to do to bring us back to you to make us holy to make us righteous to make us just to make us accept what a what a marvelous thing you did and we thank you that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone so that you alone will get all of the glory all of the praise all of our worship you are worthy O oh God and we thank you that you not only saved our soul but you are changing our lives thanking you that you chose to indwell us to inhabit us through the presence of your Holy Spirit Jesus you said you had to go away so that the comforter could come and we thank you Lord it's only because of the comforter that we haven't lost our mind it's only because of the comforter that we haven't given up it's only because of the indwelling power and presence of the Holy Spirit that we've been able to have any success in our lives to this point. We thank you for his help. And now, God, I need his help. I need his help to preach. It's amazing, Lord. It seems that every time I get up to preach, it feels like it's the first time. I still need you, Lord. I'm not a professional. If you don't touch my words if you don't breathe on my feeble effort it amazes me that you work with broken people to declare your holy word but because you called me I recognize I wasn't qualified when you called me but you qualified me because you did call me help me with boldness to stand and preach what thus saith the Lord. I pray for lost people. I pray for my friends in Maryland right now, some who check me out on Facebook, some of my high school friends. I pray, Lord, you touch their hearts and encourage them today and, and let them know, Lord, that Chris is no better than any of them. I've just been touched. I've just been saved by grace and I pray you save my friends back home. Guys and gals I used to do dirt with, I just pray you let them know how much you love them. And I pray, Lord, for Christians who will hear this message today, that, Lord, today the trajectory can change where it needs to, that the word of God is that powerful. So I pray for people who are struggling, believers, because we all struggle and we all need a word that will help break the yoke and even remind us of how free and free indeed we really are. So may we not live beneath our means. May we not live beneath what you have called us to because we've gotten comfortable in complacency and compromise. But I pray that your word would go forth and bring 
fruit, some 30, 60, and 100 fold, starting with me. We'll be very careful to give your name the praise, for we ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. John chapter 19. Beginning at verse 38, the New King James Version reads, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Verse 41, now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they lay Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. John chapter 20, verse 1. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. With your prayers and with the help of the spirit of the living God, I'd like to attempt to preach a message this morning entitled, I Come to the Garden. I Come to the Garden. The year was 1912, and C. Austin Miles wrote and published a gospel song entitled, In the Garden. The year was 1912, and Miles had no idea that this song would one day become a hymn, that the church and even the world would sing for over a hundred years. This song in the garden has been cherished by believer and unbeliever alike for over a century. Mahalia Jackson sang this song that would become a hymn. Elvis Presley sang in the garden. Roy Rogers and Dale Evans sang in the garden. Alan Jackson and Tennessee Ernie Ford sang in the garden. Perry Como sang in the garden, and Al Green put some soul on it and sang in the garden. But this song is so powerful and diverse that Willie Nelson even has a version of this song. Anne Murray has a version. Loretta Lynn, Brenda Lee, Denise Williams, the Statler Brothers, Doris Day, Brad Paisley. 
Johnny Cash, the man in black. Marvin Sapp and our elder from years ago, Kurt Whalum, have all done renditions of this powerful hymn in the garden. The first line of the hymn says, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And in our text this morning, we see Mary coming to the garden alone. In the text today, we, we see that Jesus was buried in a place that was a garden. And it was in this place that Mary approached the sepulcher early in the morning. And for Mary, as we will see today, the garden was a place of grief. The garden was a place of mourning and lament. The garden was where she had come to grieve. So the first of two points I want to share with you this morning is there was grief in the garden. There was grief in the garden. You see, the garden is a place of loneliness. Look at chapter 20, verse 1. Now the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark. And from John's version of this story, we see here at this moment, Mary is alone. There are other versions in the Gospels as the story progresses where Mary is accompanied by the other women, but as far as we can ascertain in this moment, Mary is by herself. In other words, she is alone. And for some of us, when we grieve, we prefer to be alone. We prefer to isolate ourselves. We, we prefer to be secluded. We just want to be alone in a place of solitary. We, we, we just want to be alone. And Mary here is alone. Because grief, as Deacon Jesse said to me this morning, hits each of us differently. Some of us can't imagine grieving alone. We must have others with us. But others of us are people who are like, man, I want to be by myself as I think about the death of my Lord, Jesus Christ. So there was grief in the garden and there was loneliness there. Another thing is that the garden is a place of darkness because the Bible says in chapter 20, verse 1, that when Mary got to the tomb, it was still dark. So a new day had begun, but the sun, S-U-N, had not risen yet. And I don't want to let the cat out the bag, but since you already know how this story ends and how this story goes, Mary came there expecting to see a dead S-O-N. Not believing that the Son of God would rise. So the sun had not risen, and in her mind, the Son of God had not risen. It's dark. 
And when it's dark, that means it's gloomy. When it's dark, especially in a cemetery, I don't care how many flowers are around, it's murky. Shadows are lurking everywhere. You can barely see. Your vision is impaired. The day speaks of what your soul feels like. Your soul is dark and gloomy, just like the day. So you get up and go in the dark to go to the tomb because the garden was a place of grief. The garden is also a place of disappointment because it says in verse 2 of John 20, then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So she's disappointed. She's coming to the tomb to see and to anoint the dead body of her Lord. But when she gets there and sees that the stone has been rolled away and his body not there, she's now disappointed. Because what she thought she would see, she did not see. Who she thought she would see, she did not see. And the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. She had an expectation that went unfulfilled. And so she ran to her leaders to try to get encouragement and wisdom and insight. And they were just as dumbfounded as she was. But the garden is a place of disappointment. It's also a place of sorrow. Because as we go to verse 11 of chapter 20, it says, But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. So this place of grief is obviously a place of sorrow, a place of tears. The Bible says she was weeping and as she wept, which meant that her weeping was continuous. She just didn't weep and stop, but she wept and kept on weeping. And this word weep here in the Greek language to speak of the Hebrew people is a word that speaks of wailing. So this just isn't a few tears that came out of her aqueduct. This, this is a great outpouring to the point where she is lamenting loudly. She is crying profusely. She is expressing herself with moans and groans. She is weeping and she is wailing because the garden is a place of grief. But not only that, the garden is a place of interacting with strangers. Verse 12, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. She sees two angels, but she doesn't really know that they're angels. Because many times when the angels would appear, as we see in other portions of this particular resurrection story, their countenance would be bright like lightning and their clothes would be shining, uh, 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 shining out. And, and, and in this case, there's no description given of these two men. In other words, they look ordinary. Sometimes when angels appear, we know that they are ministers of light. We know that they are spirit beings, but they can also take human form. And so on this particular case, when these angels take human form, 
they don't have the brilliance and the radiance that they typically show up with, but they're just sitting there where the body of Jesus had once laid, and they're sitting, one at the head and one at the foot of the body, on the slab, right there in the tomb. And she's looking at these two men, and she has a conversation with them. She's interacting with strangers. Now, here's the deal. I believe Peter and John, who had run to the tomb, beginning at verse 3, should have stayed at the tomb with Mary to comfort her and to encourage her. But the church, the pastors, left Mary alone to fend for herself and to continue weeping in isolation. So rather than talking to two strangers, she should have been talking to Peter and John. But they left her there. And she's talking to these two men that she doesn't know are angels. Now, here's what I want you to see. Grief would not allow her to see what God was up to. Grief, her, her grief was so bad that she couldn't see how God was working in the midst of her grief. She couldn't see the good news in the midst of her grief. Pastor, why do you say that? Because if you look at verse 12 again, it says she saw two angels in white, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And what God had just given her was a picture of the finished work of Jesus. What God had just given her was a proclamation of the gospel and that the Lord was alive. But grief didn't allow her to see it because sometimes when you're sad, you just want to stay sad. And you can miss what God wants to show you and what he's doing. Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, remember the mercy seat in the Old Testament? The mercy seat was the lid that was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God amongst the people of God. And the Ark of the Covenant was made with wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, Moses' uh, tablets or the commandments were there. Aaron's rod, which budded, was there. And so it represented the presence of God, the power of God. But on top of this box that was made of wood but also overlaid with gold would be what was called the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat, there were two images of angels with their wings stretched out towards one another on top of the lid. You've seen the movie Indiana Jones. Don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, behind the tent, behind the veil, once a year on the Day of Atonement and take the blood of an unblemished lamb and sprinkle it on the top of that lid, which was called the mercy seat, as a sign that the sins of the nation had been atoned for. Blood sprinkled, two angels there. Well, what you see right here is the fulfillment of the Ark of the Covenant. Because where the angels are sitting there, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body had been, the bludgeon, bloody body of Jesus, there had to have been blood on that pavement. But when you're in grief, you can't see what God is doing. And she missed 
that moment, at least temporarily. You see, the garden is a place of uncertainty. Look at verse 13. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. One of the most humbling things and even frustrating things in life is when you've lost something and you can't find it. Your glasses. One day I'm looking for my glasses and they were up on top of my head. Uh, uh, looking for your keys or whatever. When something you're looking for, you can't find it, things become uncertain and don't be late to go somewhere and you can't find your keys. Now, in my home, my wife is called the finder. So when I lose my stuff, my wallet, and you can't ride around here without your wallet, and I think my tags are expired, so I need to get there. But anyway, my wife has an anointing from God, and she can find stuff. But not just me, but all the children. She can find, does anyone else in here have that anointing where you can find stuff that's lost? But here's Mary saying, where is he? I can't find him. I can't see him. I can't look upon him. I don't know where he is. And she says, they have taken him. Who is the they she's talking about? You know how we always talk about them and they? She's doing the same thing. She doesn't identify them, but we have an idea of who they are. The Pharisees, the scribes, that they've taken his body to try to destroy him and humiliate him and hurt him. And so there's uncertainty for her. This past Wednesday, before Bible study, I went to Kroger to grab a couple of things, and I ran into a woman, as I told my daughter, from Brooklyn, New York. Um, she was looking at some eggs, some brown eggs, and she could not read the expiration date on the eggs. So of all the people in the grocery store, she asked, can you help me see what this date, the expiration date is? And I go over there, and y'all know I can barely see even with my glasses. And I'm looking, Gary, at the, and I can't make out the number. And so I, because, you know, I'm kind of smart, I grabbed another set of eggs in there and looked at the expiration date on that, and I saw the expiration date. So I said, oh, yeah, you can get these. These are good. And we struck up a conversation, and her name was Maggie. She was from Brooklyn. And I said, my daughter lived in Brooklyn before COVID hit, and she had to come home and be with us. And uh, we started talking, and she said to me, she said, I reminded her of the brothers in Brooklyn. This was a short white lady who was a widow, and uh, her husband had died seven years ago. Uh, he had been murdered. And so she was, you could tell, she was still weighed down with it. And she said to me, she was so thankful that I just helped her with the eggs. So we just started talking. And as she started talking, because like Pastor Jerry, I'm looking for a way. How can I share the good news? How can I sprinkle a little bit of love of Jesus in here? Well, in the midst of the conversation, I find out that she's a believer. And she starts telling me about how God sends angels and how God is taking care of her. But she's so sad. 
that she wants to leave this area and go somewhere else because it reminds her every day of her husband's unfortunate demise. And she said, I think I'm going to move to Florida because there's a community of people there who have been through what I'm going through. So I, I think, I'm thinking about moving to Florida because she doesn't want to come to the same house in the same area and be reminded constantly because grief can trigger a lot of emotions. And again, we all deal with it differently and the trauma sets in. And she's like, I feel like I need to change locations to deal with the uncertainty and the trauma of my husband's death. And that's real. There are people who say, I don't want to live in that town anymore. I don't want to go to that church anymore. I don't want to work at that job anymore because it reminds me. And it may not be a physical death. It may be another kind of death that you're dealing with. I was in Baltimore, Maryland for the last time in 2019. I was there for my niece's wedding that I officiated, Gina. And while there, the place where she was getting married, she was getting married outdoors in a garden. But in order to get to the wedding spot, I had to ride by Sinai Hospital, which was right there on uh, the parkway. I forget the name of the street. But I had to ride by Sinai Hospital. And Sinai Hospital was where my father died. So I was riding by and I looked at the hospital, saying, man, that's where my dad passed in the year 2000. But I kept on going to the new life that was found at the wedding. Because although Sinai was a place of grief, I could feel it, but God says, but I don't want you to live there. Because there's still more life to live. Matter of fact, you're about to officiate a wedding. And, and, and let's, Chris, let's break it down. Yes, Sinai has grief, but it also has some glory. Why? Because the niece that I was performing the ceremony for, just a few blocks away, got, she was born at Sinai Hospital. And then come to find out, my brother Wayne was born at Sinai Hospital. And I was born at Sinai Hospital. So although that place is associated with grief, God was saying, don't let grief dictate the story of how you interact with this particular area and that building. Because there's glory there as well and not just grief. So I want to encourage somebody today. You got to lift up your heads, O ye gates. Be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. He'll meet you in your grief and reveal the gospel to you. We are not like those who grieve without hope. No, we grieve, the Bible says, with hope. But at this time, Mary doesn't know about this hope yet the way you and I do because all she knows is that her dead savior, his body is gone and now there's uncertainty in her life, instability in her life, which means the garden is a place of unanswered questions. Because in verse 13 and in verse 15, she gets hit with multiple questions like, woman, why are you weeping? 
The two strangers ask her that. Why are you weeping? And then when the gardener comes, he also asks her in verse 15, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? So she's being asked a bunch of questions. But if you notice, the people asking the questions are not revealing to her the answers, even though they know the answers. She's left in that place again of what is going on with my life. I have so many unanswered questions. I, I, I guess I'm weeping because my Lord is gone. I guess I'm seeking him, but I can't find him. The garden was a place of grief. But finally, the garden is a place where you don't see or hear God clearly. When you're mourning, when you're grieving, when you're overcome, there's a tendency and a temptation to not hear God nor see God clearly. Pastor, what do you mean? We go back to verse 14. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, sometimes the Lord could change his appearance in the various resurrection appearances where he would keep his uh, uh, visage um, distorted in such a way where people couldn't recognize him. Sometimes he did that. So maybe that was going on here. But either way, she turns around and she sees Jesus, but she doesn't know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus says to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she doesn't recognize his voice. Stay with me now. This woman, Mary Magdalene, had been delivered by Jesus of seven demons. So she knows who he is and she knows what he sounds like. But in this particular moment, she can't recognize him. Could it be that her vision was impaired because of all the tears that were flowing? Maybe. Or again, did the Lord alter his appearance and his voice? Could be. Then the Bible says in verse 15, she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. You got to love her zeal. You got to love her spunk in her heart because it's kind of like she snaps up and says, look, 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 just tell me where y'all put him and I'll go get him. Well, it took two guys to take him down off the cross and probably a bunch of other men to carry him to the sepulcher, roll the stone in front of it. But here you are by your lonesome self saying you going to go get the body of a dead man and carry him yourself because she's zealous. And she thinks Jesus is the gardener. She doesn't know that it's him. But again, if she was thinking a little clearly, she would recognize that Jesus really was like a gardener. He really was like a gardener. Why? Because gardeners work with their hands. And Jesus works with his hands. When he created the heavens and the earth and he made man from the dust of the ground. He got his hands dirty in Genesis, making us in his own image and in his own likeness. 
But then when he suited up in the game and became a man, those hands touched the blind and touched the lepers and healed the sick. Those hands fed the hungry. Those hands held children. Those hands cared for people. Because when a gardener uses his hands, those hands get dirty because those hands work in dirt. And God works with dirty folk. He puts his hands on us. And gardeners use their hands. They work in dirt. They show their care, but also gardeners use water. And they plant seeds. And so this is a really good depiction of who Jesus is because he's planted seeds in us. He's watered us. But also gardeners have to work with a thing called fertilizer or dung. Oh, I can't get an amen. Because we all have dung in our lives. But a good gardener recognizes that the dung will bring about growth over time. Because the seeds must be planted. And therefore, a gardener must be patient to wait for the seeds to sprout. Because God is the one who makes everything beautiful in its time. But we need to recognize that although you don't see the fruit of the seed, that doesn't mean the seed hasn't been planted and that it's not germinating. So he's a gardener, all right, and right now she doesn't see what he's been working on. So this garden is a place of grief. And no wonder C. Austin Miles said, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. But I'm so glad that it doesn't stay right here because the grief in the garden is about to turn into glory in the garden. And if you can just hold on a little while longer, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. That if God can raise a dead Jesus at the right time, he can raise your situation, your circumstances, your life. He can do it at the right time. But, but can you trust him that the glory is coming? Because this too shall pass. And the proof that we know this too shall pass is that the last thing you went through that you didn't think you were going to make it through, that passed and God took you to the glory. Because life is really a series of deaths and resurrections. It's really a series of grief and disappointment as well as glory and grace. That's life, even for Christians. You don't always live on the mountaintop, neither do you always live in the valley. But as we sang today, if you're up on the mountaintop, there's blood there. If you're down in the valley, there's blood there. Because God knows on your best day, you still need him just as much as you need him on your worst day. Glory is coming, and, and he's about to blow her mind. He's about to do in Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him who's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that she could ever ask or imagine. Because she came there looking to anoint a dead man. She came there looking to continue her grieving and lamenting, but glory is coming, and she doesn't even know it. So look with me at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned 
and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. The first thing I want you to see is that the garden is also a place where you hear God's voice again. She heard him earlier, but she really didn't hear him. But now she hears him and she recognizes his voice. Why? Because as Elder Aubrey got up here today for the offering, he talked about how God says, Aubrey, I'm calling you out. In other words, he is a personal, personable savior who knows your name. Oh, that don't, that don't get some of us. But he knows your name. And when he calls your name, you hear his voice. You awaken, you quicken, you get hope when you hear him call your name. Like he would say, Mary, Mary. Peter, Peter, Simon, he calls your name. And Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. Not only that, in John chapter 10, it says that the good shepherd names his sheep. He knows them by name. So although there are who knows how many millions of Chris's in the world, I'm still unique to him. And when he calls my name, I hear his voice. And when Chris, who plays the guitar for the church, hears the Lord call his name, he turns and responds. Because the God of the universe, who the highest heavens cannot contain his glory, still is able to come and be personal with each and every one of us where he not only knows our name, but he knows our pain. And the one thing the devil wants to do is to make us think that God doesn't know and God doesn't care. And that's where you have to say, no, God does know, and God does care, and God knows my name. And if I ever question his love, he's written my name on his hands, those nail-scarred hands. He, he, He knows my name. He called her by name. She heard at that time, which means she turned. That's what the Bible says, because the garden is also a place where you turn to Jesus again. I said again. Because up to this point, she's having a conversation with him, and he's behind her. He's talking earlier. She just thinks it's the gardener. She looks at him and then turns right back around, looking at the empty tomb. But then when he says her name, she turns. I'm praying for the Christian today who's looking at death, who's looking at emptiness, who is looking at hopelessness, who's looking at despair. I've been asking God, Lord, say their name. Say their name and call them up out of that. Let them turn around and be free because the garden is also a place of glory. The garden is also a place where you hold on to Jesus again in worship because when she turned around, The Bible says, Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. In other words, she grabbed a hold of him like, I ain't letting you go this time. You're not getting away from me. So she clings. She holds tight to him. And is that not what worship is? Where we get a hold of the one who's gotten a hold of us. And it's almost like she's saying, like Jacob, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. She clings. She holds on to him. But don't miss this. Please don't miss this because I'm really trying to help somebody. 
Because in order for her to hold on to Jesus, that meant she had to let something go. Pastor, what you talking about? Well, according to Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verse 1, it says that Mary brought spices that they might anoint him. So she's coming in there with spices. She's coming in there to continue embalming and covering and anointing the dead body of her Savior. She's coming in there with burial paraphernalia. But she obviously let that stuff go. When she heard him, saw him, turned around and grabbed him, which meant she let something go. Because you can't hold on to life and still hold on to burial paraphernalia. Oh, that, oh, that's a word for somebody right there. Because we've got people. Yeah, I know grief is different for everybody. But you won't let go of the plastic roses. You won't let go. Every time you see a picture of the deceased, you go to a sunken place. Yeah. God says grieve, but he don't want you to live like grief is Lord. He wants you to live like he's Lord and he's alive. And if they knew the Lord, you know you're going to see him again. So let's grow up in our grief and let's go on in life. Because you can't hold on to Jesus and hold on to burial paraphernalia at the same time. Another thing is that the garden is also a place where you get your assignment from the Lord. Because the Lord said to her, uh, uh, don't hold on to me now. I, I have not yet ascended to my father, but go. But go. Go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Because if you're really going to worship, worship is always going to be followed by work. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him. But some folk want to get caught up in worship, but never serve. Then you got people that want to serve, but they don't want to worship. God says we must do both. Worship, she's holding on, but you got to let go because there's work to do. I need you to go and tell my brothers that I'm risen. She got her assignment. She got her assignment. She was told to go and evangelize, preach to the men. <laughs> I'll come back to that in a moment. But the garden is also a place where God honors you. I'm talking about the, the place of grief. He transforms it and make it a place of glory. Only a resurrected God can do that. Because the Bible says in Mark 16, 9, now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first, first, first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. So she has this special, unique place in Christendom where she is the first person who got to see Jesus Christ. In other words, God honored her for her seeking him. He was a rewarder of her as she diligently sought him. She was a seeker who became a finder. And God says, I'm going to honor you that in your grief, you still kept coming. In your grief, you came to the grave. In your grief, you came. And I met you here in a way that you had no no idea what I was about to do. And I'm going to honor you for your obedience. I'm going to honor you for your heart. And she was the first person to see the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. God will honor you. But then God will let us know that the garden is also a place where you lead better. 
than how you came. Because in verse 18, Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. So she went out of the garden better than how she came into the garden. And that's how God wants us to grow through seasons. He just doesn't want us to go through seasons. He wants us to grow through seasons so that we mature and become more like Christ as a result of going through the grief and the pain and the sorrow and the tragedy. She comes out better than how she went in. She went in as a mourner and came out as an evangelist. Y'all didn't hear that. She came in as a mourner and left out as an evangelist to go and talk to men in a culture where women weren't supposed to teach the men anything about God. But here comes Jesus with the kingdom of God flipping this male hierarchy system that he never established, but the culture embedded and made it as if it was gospel truth when it wasn't because in the beginning, God made them male and female and God told them to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. He just didn't say to the man have dominion. He said to them have dominion. So the woman has authority. She has power. She has giftedness. She has grace. And any man who won't listen to a woman teach the word of God, you must I fool around and not meet Jesus in Galilee. Jesus knew what he was doing. And guess what? He knows his church because when she went to tell him, they didn't even listen to her. She had an assignment, but it was better when she left. See, Austin Miles. I told you about him, the man who wrote the song in the garden. He wrote it in a rather precarious place because according to his great-granddaughter, the song, which was written in 1912, it was written in a cold, dreary, and leaky basement in New Jersey. New Jersey, the armpit of America, New Jersey. If anybody's from New Jersey, I apologize. (laughs) If good things can come out of Nazareth, good things can come out of New Jersey. This song was written in a basement, and this basement didn't even have a window, let alone a garden nearby. But somehow, Miles was able to envision the beauty and the glory of Mary walking with Jesus in the garden, which is why the song goes on to say, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear. The Son of God discloses and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own and the joy we share and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known. So this man God used to write a song no doubt not only out of a dark basement but perhaps out of a dark place to talk about the hope of the gospel and of a Savior who walks with us in our grief and through our grief. Well, in conclusion, Jesus met Mary in the garden of her grief and he turned it into a garden of glory. He he turned it 
around and it was still dark. He turned it around for her. And I'm here to say that the resurrected Jesus will meet you in your grief, in your dark place, your hurting place, your alone place, the place where you're struggling. He'll meet you there. He'll call you by your name. He'll refresh you and send you back out. You know why? Because he was anointed to do that. He's anointed to do that because in Psalm 30, verse 11, David said, you have turned for me. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You did it. I, I didn't do it. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness to the end that my glory may sing praises to you and not be silent. You did it. You turned me around and placed my feet on solid ground. Isaiah 61 where the Bible says the spirit of the Lord is upon the Christ because he has anointed me to do what? To comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. This may not be where you are today, but just tuck this away. Because one day you're going to be there in the garden of grief. And the Lord wants to meet you there because he's anointed to say, give me your grief and I'll give you my gladness. Give me your garments of heaviness and I'll give you my garments of praise. I don't want anything keeping you down, especially since I've risen from the dead. Jesus knows how important it is to meet us in our gardens because the father met him in his the Garden of Gethsemane, he went in struggling as a lamb. He struggled in the garden. And he says, guys, pray with me. Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass. He's struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane, the place where the olives were pressed and crushed. And in that garden, he weeps, or, or weeps and sweats drops of blood. He's struggling. But the prayer switched, and he stopped asking God to take the cup, and he says, I received the cup. And he left out of the garden, different than how he came in. He came in as a lamb, but he left out as the lion. He said, y'all, wake up, wake up. My betrayer is here. Let's go. He had a different resolve about him because he had been in the presence of his father. And so, therefore, he knows what kind of garden Mary is in. The garden was by the place where he was crucified. Where was he crucified? At Golgotha, the place of the skull. So therefore, this was the garden of Golgotha. As he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he shows up for her because the father showed up for him. And he'll show up for you in your garden. The reason why she left differently was because she had an encounter with someone who was alive that she wasn't expecting to have an encounter with. And the grief turned to glory. Because she met someone there. You know, in Washington, D.C., there's the White House. And many people get to tour the White House. My wife and I got to tour it once. We really couldn't get too far in it. But my older sister, Kathy, she's toured the White House three times. And they take her through all the rooms and they showed all kinds of things to my sister that they didn't show to me and my wife. 
But here's the thing. As you tour the White House, there are places you can't go in there. They're going to show you a level, an area, the first floor. You can see this room with that china. You can see this area where the press conferences are held. You can see this spot. But you can't go to living quarters because that's where the first family lives. And during the Obama presidency, there was a tour group that was going in, just going in like any other tour. And they're going through, and one guy said, I took off work. I didn't really want to take off work, but my daughter been wanting to go and tour the White House. So they toured the White House. People from Sweden came all over, just to tour the White House and see the first floor. Just tour the White House and just look at all the paintings and stuff. Just tour the White House. But unbeknownst to them, on this particular day with this particular group, something happened that doesn't normally happen. The first family came from upstairs and came downstairs. Somebody see where I'm going, right? And, 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 and as they were walking through, Secret Service says, in the next room, prepare yourself. You're about to meet the president of the United States. And people who were coming to the White House just to tour the first floor, now they're about to meet someone who has a level of glory on him. And they meet him. And President Obama said, you just happened to come on a day that I was hanging out here. I don't normally do this. And they interviewed the people after they had shaken his hand and shaken Michelle's hand. They even brought the two dogs out there. And the people got the whole thing. And they weren't expecting that. And they had them on film. They were smiling from ear to ear. Because the tour was transformed into an experience because they got to meet the first family and the president of the United States. And they left out different than how they came in. They left out smiling and talking about who they just met in the White House. People of Strong Tower Bible Church, you may come in this door this morning one way, but I pray you leave another way. You may wake up feeling down and discouraged, but I pray that somewhere along the day you meet somebody with some glory on him. And when you meet the one with the glory on him and he knows your name and he reminds you of your assignment, he fills you with joy, he fills you with hope, he don't have to make you go out and tell people about him. You are excited and want to go out and tell people about him because the one with the glory met you in your grief. You went in one way. And you came out another. Father, thank you for Mary. We need this story. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the celebration of it. And yet there are still believers in our midst who are struggling with grief, who are struggling every day to make it. They know you, Lord, but for whatever reason, they're still weighted down. And Lord, you want them free. And I pray, Lord, that you would help them, help us as we grieve. Lord, I pray this morning for the clerk in the George Floyd case where Derek Chauvin is being tried for murder, the clerk who reported the $20 bill, the fake $20 bill, has come under such grief, this 20-year-old decided to move from his house, which was over top of the convenience store, where the fake bill was passed and George Floyd was killed on the street.
He was so overtaken with grief, guilt, and remorse that he moved. Lord, I pray you raise up some people to get to him. I pray for that person, Lord, in our body. They're struggling. Grief has made them not want to move. They're immobilized. They're struggling because they lost that job because of that divorce. They're struggling because of that death in the family. They're struggling because of the bad news, because of a doctor's report. Oh, God, there's still a lot of life living because to live is Christ, because Christ is alive. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock, my God, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name I pray.